Welcome to the Translate Your Doctor podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Figures, joined with my co-host, Dr. Trey Sertish. Good morning, Trey. As always, let's jump right in. Very <laughs> excited. So this is our second episode. Thank you so much for everyone that listened to our inaugural episode last time. And in this first season, what we're exploring is what is wrong with healthcare. And what we talked about in episode one or episode zero, depending on how you think about it, is that this broad question of what's wrong with healthcare? Really, the easiest way to, to jump into it from Trey and I's perspective is thinking about the physician and patient relationship. And that the better that we as healthcare stakeholders can facilitate that relationship, the better that healthcare gets. And a lot of the problems in healthcare can be boiled down to what's happening in that patient physician relationship. Before we move any further, Trey, would you say that any differently? <laughs> no, no. I think. We had talked about, again, this wedge between patient and physician. If we hadn't, we'll introduce it now, which is just that the healthcare system is meant to facilitate this relationship between patient and physician. And that can look many different ways. And the problems that we see and will discuss as, you know, drive that wedge further and the solutions we hope will kind of bring them closer together. I think that's incredibly well said. The exploration that I thought would be valuable today as we as we think about building these initial frameworks for understanding this discussion and when you and I talk offline we talk about you know how do we talk about healthcare in a way that that doesn't alienate the people that we most need to reach which are people that don't have the decades of experience that you and I bring and the the deep understanding of all of these complicated mechanisms involved and one of the most common questions that I get as a, a former practice administrator, and I know that you get as a physician, is this question of what even makes a good doctor? And th that question, I don't think is that productive, but I think the productive version of that question is, what should I be looking for when I'm looking for a physician? And I'm curious as to your perspective on that. I've got my own um, opinion as having worked with a number of uh, primary care physicians. But how do you think about that? And how do you even approach answering that question yeah. when you're asked by a family member or friend? I think the latter is, is much more important, a clarifying question, because, yeah, I think a caveat to this is that it is opinion based. I think it's one of those things that someone can experience or see good doctoring and say, yeah, that's that's a good doctor, but very hard to articulate it and define it specifically because the series of traits and behaviors and knowledge and abilities and all these things that go into what makes good for people vary so greatly as well as what patients expect. And so your question initially, which is like, what should patients look for? What should they expect? What should they, you know, I wouldn't, I mean, I would almost go so far as to say demand of their physicians to be good. I think that that's going to be much more productive to talk about because that can be relative to the patient because different patients are gonna need different kinds of doctors. And I'm not just talking about surgeons versus internists versus pediatricians versus radiologists. I'm talking about different people get along with different physicians for the same services sometimes. Yeah, I think that there's a part of that that it's very easy to take for granted in that it's sometimes it's really difficult to think of healthcare providers as people as people with different personalities and different <laughs> likes and dislikes to the extent that you have a friend group that might be a certain type of person or, or have certain personality mm -hmm. types, you might need care providers or a care team mm -hmm. that leans a certain way and that with those exact same qualities. And so I think that 
that's very underestimated when we talk about nursing care and mm-hmm. when we talk about physicians is just how much personality comes into it and style. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, a big factor that uh, that's very easy to take for granted because it's so easy to cast healthcare providers, our healthcare heroes, as this sort of bland archetype, you know, mm-hmm. the, the physician as this cookie cutter mm-hmm. model, which I've never seen for every. 10 physicians, I've seen 10 distinct personalities, just like you'd see anywhere else. But from your perspective, what are are the common traits, what are the the generic traits that you'd start with in thinking about like finding the right physician? Sure, you know, find someone that, that suits your personality, but you know, is there a, if there are 17 different Venn diagram circles, where do you see that universal overlap? Sure, and I do, I'm looking forward to answering this. I will say, I think it's important to get into your earlier point about like, you know, most people assume healthcare workers and doctors are just sort of this archetype. I would say that that's probably for many careers. I, I was just reflecting on it. You know, what do I think of a typical fireman should be? Like, I, I don't know, but I just imagine like a movie type kind of or a television show kind of thing. I think we do that with police officers, firemen, train conductors, whatever it is, like when you think of these careers. And so I think it's natural to do that. It's just that there's a lot of pressure on the patient physician relationship to be good, to be great. Not that there isn't on these other careers, but I think that just a lot of there's so much emotion wrapped up and there's so much personal sort of history wrapped up with your health and sharing that with someone else that I think that's why it gets so much attention. So what do I think like a doctor should be for a patient? Let me just make sure I'm getting your question right. If I'm looking for a physician, what should I be looking for? What, what makes a good doctor for me? You, you mentioned thinking about, well, to some extent, what do you like? What do you not like? That's a trick mm-hmm. question in some mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. What are the ways in which it's not a trick question in terms of you know, what am I looking for when I'm when I'm picking a, a physician? And I think that if we're going to be talking about physician, I think we're going to speak about it in a sort of the most general manner possible, which would be like a primary care physician, somebody who is going to be take assuming responsibility for most of your chronic medical conditions and getting you where you need to go for that. And I'll clarify, because I think I'm unintentionally like trying to back you into a corner here. <laughs> the use of the word good is very loaded, right? And that can be very <laughs> challenging. And, and so from my perspective, I'm using good not as a universal, mm-hmm. you know, God is coming down from the mountaintop and saying, you, Dr. Sertish, are a good physician. I'm saying from the perspective of the average patient, when the sure. patient thinks about the word good sure. and you know, one person might say good, the other person might say, well, not good for me. So good from the perspective of the patient in terms of how do you guide someone that's saying, hey, do you know any good physicians in the area? How the heck do we even, you know, get to answering that question? And there are probably some universal qualities. I certainly have a a perspective that I want to share. But you as a physician, surely you have the dark secrets on the (laughs) magical way to find a a great physician or a good physician from the perspective of the patient. Sure. Honestly, the thing that I teach about often to the students and try and tell myself is being a good advocate. And I think that that term can also be nebulous, just like good doctor. Well, what is a good advocate or what is a strong advocate for patient care? 
And I think many of the way we were taught as physicians were told, treat your patient as if it was your grandmother or as if it was your father or a close relative, right? And so that you are invested and care for that person. But I think that the disconnect there in that line of instruction is that that doesn't really communicate the core, which is you're talking about good, I'm thinking about effective. That's what I'm thinking about. Like when when you're describing what is a quote, good physician, I think that what most people would want is I want an effective physician. I want and someone, and that is a little cold. And I think that there needs to be um, some personality in there and morality, right? You know, and that's when we're actually talking about capital G good. But if we're talking right now about your question, what I'm hearing is what makes an effective physician. So when I think of what makes an effective physician, I think of advocacy and really taking responsibility for the patient's health and what they're trusting you with. And that can be something as simple as a hangnail, right? Or as complex as their heart failing. But what are some of the ways that as physicians, how are you taught around that? I mean, is that, is this, this advocacy concept, is that the standard that you all are supposed to hold yourselves to? Because I think that is a black box as well. People understand this general concept of there's a medical board and and you Mm -hmm. can get in trouble if you do bad things. Mm -hmm. But from, from square one, what are the things that you all are taught in medical school make you a, a, a effective physician? Mm-hmm. And that are the, the, you know, are there 10 commandments? What, what does it look like <laughs> as you become a phys- physician to define yourself as a, as a good physician? Yeah. I sit and think because it's extremely variable, right? We only, most people, most doctors only go to one medical school. And so it's hard to take what is largely anecdotal even if like myself, I study a lot about how to teach learners, how to be better at medical education and broaden my understanding of how we educate learners. Even despite that though, I can't personally know what it was like to go to medical school in New York state or California. I went to medical school in Texas and only one of the many medical schools in Texas. And I was only one of the many medical students in my class, which their personalities change from year to year and their instruction changes year to year because guess who also changes? The instructors, your clinicians, everyone that you're exposed to who I'm getting to your answer, which is that's who influences what good, what effective, what advocate, what all these things are defined as. But to answer even more succinctly, there's no specific thing. There's no specific curriculum that, talks about this because that is difficult, morally dubious, and extremely energy intensive for what medical school also serves, which is just getting you to become competent at all the knowledge, all the ability, all the mechanics of being a doctor. And so you're shoving a lot into it. And I think that every patient, every person in and out of medicine would understand that that is super important. That's incredibly important to get good at that and hone that, but to define it and actually put pen to paper about what is that curriculum going to look like? It's going to be really hard. And so therefore my experience at my institution, but also my experience going to other institutions through other parts of my training and now my practice reveals that everyone does it different. And 
but everyone's looking for the same goal, which is what you're talking about, a good doctor. However, everyone's definition is also slightly different, which, right, that makes it even harder. If the curriculum is all different, the definition is different, then your output, your result is going to be different. Does this make sense? I just don't know where that leaves us. This is like, I'm, I'm real time. Like you're blowing my mind here. I'm like, cause what I heard was like, Patrick, every place is different. These universal standards are somewhat all made up because every place is a little different. So there's, there's no universal standard for ethics. There's no universal standard for good. Sure. What are these medical boards then basing anything off of if, if it, if it can all be so variable? Well, let me continue to elaborate on this. I mean, you even mentioned ethics, right? Like ethics, ethics itself has major frameworks that we work in, right? Which, which essentially boil down to what is really in vogue more recently in the previous decades is patient autonomy, allowing patients to make their own decisions and lead their care versus the very traditionally paternalistic you know, I tell you as doctor what to do. I make those decisions for you. There's non-maleficence, which is, you know, the Hippocratic oath, do no harm. I don't want to do any harm to my patients or the people that I serve. There's beneficence, which is I want to do the most good for people. Okay. And then there's social justice, which is, okay, taking a more 40,000 foot view of what are we going to do overall? And all of those are, I wouldn't say equivalent in all situations, but they are equally as strong an ethical framework. And sometimes a physician dips into one and then goes into another or uses multiple at the same time for even one patient themselves, like to make decisions. And so I'm not meaning to introduce more complexity into this, but it is, it's increasingly complex. It's like, how do I drive my ethics? How do I define good? What is advocate? What is effective? And so just that definition is extremely difficult. That's why we have philosophers. But then you also literally have to do the sausage making of it, which is, okay, I've now defined this, even if that's arbitrary, I now need to write this curriculum to teach maybe 200 different medical students every year who come into school to learn to be a doctor, all with their own experiences, their own ethical frameworks, their own personal personalities. And you then have to impose that curriculum on them and hope that it has the same result, which we all know that it won't. Because we're, the fact of the matter is we're teaching facts to medical students and the output is still different at the end of medical school, right? And so you can only imagine when you start to get to things that are a bit softer like this, that it can be extremely challenging and variable in what your outcome is. First, do no harm, asterisk. <laughs> Whatever you happen to define do no well, harm as. Absolutely. I think that, yeah, ethical relativism is the natural or is a natural assumption that can happen from this, right? Which is just like, well, what is right? You know, now we're talking about being freshmen in the quad when you're in college and you're just learning about all these things and you're talking about with all your friends, like what is good and so on. And yes, I think that that is a natural thing you could fall into. However, I always push back and say that you have to define, you have to understand these things so that you can define it for yourself and for your patients, right? Because that's the key, getting back to our original question, which is how do we create effective doctors? How do we create good doctors, little g, you know, good doctors? And how do we create these advocates? Well, it's a lot of legwork, you know? Some physicians are gifted 
and they have a great intuition about people, a great empathetic drive, and they're just naturally charismatic to connect with patients, that that is not all people, nor is that all physicians. And so that demands a lot of work to think about and reflect on how do I connect to people? How do I do a good job? It seems like we've put people in a somewhat deep well and trying to wade out of this because the from an outsider's perspective, there's this rigor around curriculum that seems mm. so obvious for understandable reasons, important on the technical po- components of being a physician. But as a physician, so as in life, that the technical components of how we live our days every day are married with the subjective humanistic components mm-hmm. that go into everything. Mm-hmm. You see a, a, this massive movement in tech around, hey, the the being technically proficient at executing on an objective is one thing, but not having a moral compass to drive your decisions, I think to to the untrained ear, the danger of that is that it feels like a punt. And so what I don't think you mean is that the medical system has just punted on the question of ethics and they've just punted on the question of what is or is not appropriate? No, far from it. I think that it's just... It's, this is unfair to medical education, but it's much more opt-in. And the sort of analog that I think about is nutrition. Nutrition is something that perhaps gets, depending on the medical institution, all right, maybe a week, maybe a week in total of days spent learning about nutrition. Now, that doesn't mean you're not learning about it in other ways, right? You have an entire biochemistry course dedicated to what our vitamins and minerals actually do biochemically in our body. So you understand what vitamin B12 does. Okay. But when I'm telling nutrition, I'm talking about like what food we take and how that translates to health or illness. All right. And, but if, for those who are interested in it, you can opt in to further education. All right. And that usually manifests as elective rotations that manifests as finding mentors within that field at your institution to get, get closer that manifests as self-study Okay, that manifests as going to conferences dedicated to nutrition, reading the journals that are dedicated to it, you know, all these things. But I talk about them as opt in because it's not really built in the formal curriculum beyond that week or so. And again, I'm using that somewhat arbitrarily because that was my experience. But most medical schools are similar. And so I think that ethics, effective doctoring, the morality of medicine, all those things Yes, you have small group discussion generally. That's how they usually introduce a lot of these topics is that you have a group of, you know, six to eight medical students that are cohorted together with an attending physician or a boss physician who generally has some experience and charisma, right? And is thought to be amongst his or her peers to be good, both capital G good and lower G good. All right. And just kind of partners with these students to mold them, apprentice them through these kind of things. So that's like one of the sausage making ways we introduce these things. You also have lectures on them. You're introducing them. There's societies within a lot of these uh, medical institutions that are dedicated to ethics. There are ethicists that work as clinicians and there are things such as ethics consults in the hospital. So you can see it as part of the formal side, but a lot of ethics, a lot of these moral aspects of what makes a good doctor, those are opt in for for learners, if you will. So, and that has results, right? Like Mm. 
you expect all doctors to come out on the other side, knowing how a broken bone works, knowing how the heart is supposed to pump and function. You can pretty much be assured that's going to happen on the other side. You don't necessarily, you aren't, I should say, guaranteed that everyone coming on the other side could be an ethicist or understand these ethical situations or even understand, again, like our original question, what is a good physician? This is wonderful. This is something you and I have not talked about deeply because I'm leaving with a very different um, <laughs> opinion about the medical education system. If and, and of course, I'm putting you on the spot. And of course, your job is not to hold the entire medical education system on your shoulder. What I want is your perspective as an individual who went right. through an individual program, caveat, caveat, caveat. Right. And this this idea that 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 the medical system, the structural medical system has done everything in its power to contort itself away from the question of medical ethics as it relates to a structural approach to the humanistic quality of healing mm -hmm. back mm -hmm. to the Hippocratic Oath as mm -hmm. a phenomenal bit of branding. But in terms mm -hmm. of the curriculum behind fleshing out the Hippocratic Oath, it's like, okay, that's one of our elective classes. So <laughs> if you want to do an extra semester, we'll, we'll let you sign up for the Hippocratic Oath class. But, you know, if it doesn't relate to stitching up a wound or, you know, healing a concussion, eh, you know, it's, it's, it's on the margins. <laughs> and I think that, again, it's com it's complicated not i know that makes for more difficult listening right that it's it being told it's complicated and trying to describe nuance is hard because i think that in all situations we want to understand simply what is happening because we want then to have simple solutions and that just isn't the case and i think that the simple concepts we're describing in this podcast and just in our discussions in general is that again if the system is driving a wedge between patient and physician, that's the simple concept is that that's kind of being driven apart. Okay, well, then what are ways that we can draw that closer? All right. I think that's going to be as simple as it gets, because I think that getting back to originally what you're saying earlier, what would you what would I tell a patient, you know, in order to like, define what an effective doctor is for them? How would they go about finding that doctor? I would come back at them and I'd say, well, there's homework, you know, Good there's luck. a lot. There, <laughs> I know I wouldn't say that because I, again, I want to be an effective advocate. And I think that frankly hits to one of the core components of being an effective advocate for patients, which is recognizing I can't have the answers for another person if it comes to things that go beyond the medical problem itself, right? I know where to send you if you have a stroke. I know where to send you if you have a heart attack. But if it's something beyond that, right, if it's something that like I cannot deal with the the emotional burden of the death of my spouse, you know, that that is a much more difficult thing. And frankly, those emotional illnesses and I'm not just talking about mental illness, I'm talking about the emotional burden of illness, whether in a loved one or in yourself. That's what I think frustrates patients the most and leads to the most disharmony between patient and physician because doctors generally don't have great simple solutions for those. So that's why I think these episodes have to deal in nuance, have to deal in, quote, it's complicated, in our hopes that we can explore and find some answers and make it a little bit more simple and hopefully give some context for patients, but also some items like action items, like things they can do to help. 
so that's not so nebulous. Yeah, I can't get past all the jokes here that I'm going to need to <laughs> make, which is, listener, you're going to need to make sure that your physician took the um, the, the three <laughs> three thousand level class on the Hippocratic Oath. That was an elective class that they didn't have to take. So you're going to want to ask them if they took no. the ethics class in medical school. It was optional. It was an optional class. So you're going to need to make sure that they took that class. It's fun. It's funny. I know it is a good joke. I I. I would also, I'm almost playing my own devil's advocate, but I would say that, you know, that's not necessarily guaranteed because there's plenty of people who I worked with that. Why are you that, doing this? Why are you doing this to people? Why are you, what your, your chaos is like, is you're like, no, 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 Patrick, it's not good luck in finding a good physician. Patrick's trying to like, well, maybe they should think about ethics. Well, it's very complicated. It's all very complicated. It's not, you can't even depend on them having taken the ethics class. So, I mean, you're pushing us closer to good luck. You're doing everything in your power to push us closer to life is entropy and, you know, just pray to whatever God you pray to that you happen to find the right physician. Honestly, though, I think that some actionable items, if a patient was coming to me and not just me for the solution, but me for figuring out how to get better relationships with their physicians in general. Because again, the odds that a patient, a person is going to need one doctor for the remainder of their lives is just so small. It's so small. You're going to interact with a team and that team is likely not going to know one another, right? Your your primary care doctor is sending you to a a cardiologist across town whom they might have met maybe at a conference locally once, but they may not have never seen this person. And they trust them based on word of mouth or reviews or just the the contract they have with their insurance. You know, I mean, there's a variety of things that go into that. But the fragmentation of healthcare like that means that most people are going to have experiences with different doctors. And so if they were coming to me and saying, like, Doc, I really need help figuring out how to get an effective doctor, I'm not going to just tell them good luck. But what I am going to tell them is like, I think you do need to taste some things. It's like when you're growing up and you're like, well, I tasted okra. I don't really like that. Okay, but I really like cucumbers and stuff. And somebody could have defined what those taste like to you uh, in words, but I don't think that would have been very helpful. It would have been like, well, I mean, I guess I understand what those words mean. But then you experience, you're like, I got it. Now, am I equating the tasting of okra and, and cucumber to a life or death situation? No, but most most encounters with the doctor are not life and death, right? Right. They're, the okra shouldn't poison you. Right. right. That's bad. But so I would say I, I would say that most doctor phys, uh, patient relationships, most interactions are not going to be life or death. And so there is this capacity to be like, okay, well, I like this about my doctor, and I don't like this. And I think that for many people, that's where it ends. They they identify those things. They say, you know what, I like Doctor Smith. She does this. I really like how she talks to me about this problem. I wish she did this, or even it doesn't even get that far. It's like, I don't like this. And they just leave it there and you just accept it. Much like you accept how your uncle is or how your cousin is or something like that, you just accept it. And I think unlike family with physicians, if you're feeling like you're not getting, again, effective care, lower G, good care, then you know you gotta have avenues to then find that. I, I think I would have done a better job of suckering you into this conversation by by asking you what standard you hold yourself to 
and then asking you why it's not fair to hold that standard to every other physician. Because I'd be very interested, because uh, I think we would have had a very different discussion if I'd said, well, what makes, what do you think is a standard for you? And I think that would have been much less subjective um, than this broad ranging ah, goodness, appropriateness, what, who can even say? Uh, and <laughs> well, pa Patrick, not to interrupt you, but I think that that would be a perfect lead into the next episode. Sure, sure. Something that's really frustrating mm -hmm. as an administrator and something that's that we do like really terribly in healthcare, and there's such a beautiful long list of things we do bad. <laughs> Physician bios are one of my absolute favorite things in healthcare because no one has any idea exactly what is supposed to be in that biography. Like, why is it there? It's there so that you know what medical school your physician went to. What exactly is that communicating to the patient? What is that telling to sure. the patient in that in that moment? It, it's this very charming, like sure. oh, and like Doctor Sertish likes to. He's very active and he's an active yeah. runner. It's like well, that's all very charming. And what I think it underscores is that mm -hmm. we aren't exactly sure as a, a society, as a health system, what the patient should know about their doctor. And patients universally have not done an effective job of communicating with the medical system on, hey, here's what I want to see about the doctor before mm -hmm. I set up the appointment. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, I think, so unfortunate because we put all of the work on the physician, or sorry, on the patient mm -hmm. to come into the exam room and to hold to hold that physician to some sort of standard, but we've skipped over that dating part of it, right? If if the patient to some extent mm -hmm. should be sampling, if we should be doing speed dating classes mm -hmm. where patient shows up to a gymnasium, there's 15 primary care physicians, all from different practices. You'll get five minutes which with each primary care physician, a bell will ring, and it's really just a chance for you to talk <laughs> about medical ethics and the physician's approach to exercise and nutrition and, <laughs> Which, which we're joking, but like the concept of sampling 15, 10, three primary care physicians, what a massive burden on the patient. And there, we don't provide effective information to patients. You're certainly not going to get it in a patient, in a physician bio anywhere. It just, it feels like this intractable problem. If, if there are no objective standards, and I think that's a totally a fair perspective, if it is indeed subjective, well, God help us. Are we not making it super <laughs> difficult for the patient to get that subjective information? Right. Well, I yes, I, I agree with everything you said. And our, we're not going to pretend that translates your doctor and our purpose is to fix that problem, which is how do we get the speed dating thing? How do we improve review? I think that that is we know better than to know we can take that problem. I'm on. setting it up right now. Welcome <laughs> to translate your doctor tender slash physician finding service. But this is what I'll say. This is what I what we believe when we talk about this, that translate your doctor can be right, which is that and I, not to disparage, you know, mediocre doctors or doctors who who are just trying their best. I think that I think that 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 is hard. It's a, it's a difficult job. And I think that I, there are few physicians, let me put it this way, there are few physicians whom I met who don't care in their own way. There are those who are better at identifying and empathizing what patients need. And that drives better care and better behavior. And 
patients tend to like that, okay? That's not our job though, to fix their, those people. We should acknowledge that there is a spectrum of quality when it comes to physician care, okay? But what we hope to do, right, we're facing patients, we're, we're looking at patients and saying, we want to help translate for you. Well, part of that is giving them tools to draw out of their current physician the best quality they can, right? Which is improving communication, understanding the system, giving them tools to improve that relationship. And if you can't at that point, right? Say you try these things and it's just not working, then you kind of understand, I don't need to speed date necessarily, but I do need to go. I do need to try someone else. I, I honestly, I think of a, an example of this, you know, my ex-landlady from when I was in medical school, she had had a surgery while I was there and she, and, and she was impressed with the surgical ability of the surgeon who, who cared for her, you know, did, did a good job, fixed the problem, but was just did not like <laughs> his, his bedside manner, did not like how he spoke with her and treated her. And he, she was just venting to me one night over dinner about it, didn't really have a specific question, didn't really have a, a demand, didn't really have a plan in place. And we just talked and I contextualized like, well, that's unfortunate. I mean, have you ever thought about, you know, finding someone else who can do both? And or had you thought about this in terms of how you communicate with him about this and maybe telling him this is not what I like when it comes to communication? And she was like, well, I didn't think that that was possible or feasible or necessary because he did a good job. I'm like, oh, okay, that, that's fair. But I think it really revealed to me that giving patients a little bit more power over that relationship, but also understanding like how to phrase and how you approach your doctors and what you want from them. And it's not demands because I think that can really create a lot of antagonism, just like in relationships, someone came demanding a lot of things of you with a high amount of emotion and you're down here I think that that can create, create a lot of discordance, but, you know, trying to unlock that relationship, lead people along the way, that is the key, I think, to getting good or effective care. I look forward to being able to explore this uh, some more because I think we, we opened up a lot in this discussion. We had sort of a humble framework for this mm -hmm. discussion and you being the agent of chaos that you are <laughs> refused to give us any sort of linear linear ability to get from a to b in this, which i think is great which which speaks to and i would challenge you in that you know mm -hmm. part of why we we built or building translate your doctor is to help patients make these decisions right and so mm -hmm. I, I i don't feel comfortable with the idea of punting on how to help patients pick their doctor. The healthcare system is not going to meet them there. The healthcare system will con will continue to put out bios about how many dogs each physician has <laughs> and not talk about the physician's approach to listening, the physician's approach to, you know, progressive therapies. The you know, patients, the average patient is not getting the information they need. And it is, it's, it's ridiculous that the medical system cannot meet the patients even halfway in terms of giving them the information and, and that we don't help patients in making what is an important decision. And that the best that we can do for them so often is this notion of, well, you just need to shop around a little bit. I, I, I want to hold you and I to a much higher standard and helping patients get through that because I think if we were building this thing from scratch, we would have much better 
tools. I have better tools for finding a romantic mate than I have to finding the person that's going to help me progress through my cancer diagnosis, the person that's going to help me, you know, guide me, you know, mentally, emotionally, physically through all of these other major health conditions that I might have, which I would argue is just as important to, to a a happy life. But there, there's just not good tools to help navigate that. And patients are much less, much poorly equipped because at least we kind of know what we're looking for in a romantic match. We're the thing there. We, mm-hmm. We're not exactly sure what mm-hmm. a good what makes a good physician. And the fact that other physicians may not be able to help us answer that question because there's so much inherent subjectivity. Gosh, I think mm-hmm. we really encapsulated why it is so debilitatingly frustrating mm-hmm. and discouraging mm-hmm. for a lot of patients. And, and I'm, I'm feeling challenged as we wrap up this episode to, to really reflect and think about that. And to put out resources, I, I think this for for everyone listening at home. Trey just recorded a an introductory lecture that we're going to be using as as a foundational piece to these uh, these group medical um, seminars that we're providing. Trey did a, a fantastic job. Trey, despite what you may be thinking, li- listening to this podcast, Trey does have very strong perspectives <laughs> for him as a physician himself and. With, with what I think will be representative of, of this younger generation of physicians, your lecture was centered around listening. It was centered around meeting the patient where they are, wanting to understand what's meaningful to the patient. Leaving this conversation, what I'm feeling is the need to, to dive deeper into those sorts of topics, mm-hmm. specifically around helping the patient bridge the gap if they if they are not with a physician that is that is as that is naturally as open as, as you, you are. I agree with your sense of asking me what I hold myself to. I think that's much easier than thinking about globally, what should all physicians do? What should we do with education of physicians? Even though I think about that a lot, and like you say, have opinions on, I just wanna be careful to not fall into that trap of bias of thinking my way is the best way because there may be kernels of truth in there, but I can't know what aren't. And that can be very dangerous when you impose ethical frameworks on on people or professions as a whole. It can do a lot of good, but I think it can cause a lot of harm unintentionally. And you can't account for where that unintentional harm will come from. Well said. That's, as, I think, a, as good a place as any to wrap Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Translate Your Doctor podcast. As a reminder, please visit us at www.translateyourdoctor.com. Pretty straightforward. Sign up for our mailing list. Everyone that signs up for our mailing list is going to get the the intro lecture. We don't have a better term for it right now that uh, Dr. Sertish put together. 16 minutes foundational the foundational framework for every patient that has a chronic condition on on how you should think about and how your physician probably thinks about your care in terms of getting the most out of your care plan in terms of uh, what some of the challenges are, how to solve those challenges. Uh, you, you use a case that you had recently in a, of a patient in a hospital that I think is mm-hmm. fantastic, Trey. So visit us at the website, sign up for our mailing list, uh, subscribe, like, and subscribe, uh, whether you're watching the video on YouTube or you're listening to this on your podcasting service, and we will catch up with you next week. Thank you so mm-hmm. much. Thank you all.